0: Now, before we get into part two of our look at Lesson 174, The Way of the Cross, I do want to remind you that Roman crucifixions were always public events. Personally, I do not understand why so many people are drawn to gawking at things such as this, but it's obviously part of the darker side of humanity, that public executions have always drawn large crowds of people, which amazingly even have included women and children. Why would you want to take children to such an event? But history shows us that they have. Think of Roman coliseums that were filled to capacity with people who cheered and even partied as they watched brutal gladiator fights to the death. Bloody, gory, awful things or um, as they were filled to capacity to watch Christians actually be mauled and eaten by hungry lions, or burned at the stake, alive. Would you bring your children to view such a thing as that? But it's a shame, you know, a lot of people bring take children to movies that are just as violent. And think of the multitudes of the French peasants, who gathered to watch the guillotine do its gruesome work of beheading those of royal blood in the upper class in the French Revolution? You know, the guillotine. Again, women and children would gather around. It was a great day of entertainment to watch the elite uh, bourgeoisie or whatever they called it. The proletariat would be gathered around to watch all the royal bloods have their heads cut off. And then we have, even in our own history, the early Americans who thought it was a great day of entertainment to witness a public hanging. Well, Roman executions were certainly no different, the crucifixions. The criminal was paraded from the prison to the place of execution in, we discussed this last week, the most securitous securitous meandering path feasible all through the city, because the Romans wanted as many people as possible to see their iron arm of justice at work. Now, we don't know, and I gave you all, or Terry made copies of a little map of the city of Jerusalem, and you see that dark spot right there where the praetorium is? That's where Jesus was condemned. That's where Pilate washed his hands and and condemned an innocent man to be crucified, is at uh, Gabbatha, or the pavement, the judgment hall, and um, where Jesus was crucified was just outside the city wall. There, you can see the traditional Calv- Calvary, uh, or Golgotha. So, if you use their little chart down here, that was only about a quarter of a mile if you walked direct. Probably, they did take Jesus and the other two and the two thieves the direct route rather than what they normally would have done would be, you know, meander all the way through the city, parade him all the way through the city so that everybody could see, oh, we don't want to disobey Rome because this is what will happen to us. But because Jesus was such a popular figure and the city was already very crowded, they didn't want to, you know, trigger a revolt. So they probably took him the direct route, which is only about a quarter of a mile. So... Um, and remember also that they would have to pass through a gate. You see that little gate that's called Genneth Gate? That means garden gate. Now the walls and the gates have been changed. Today, if you went from the pavement hall over to traditional Calvary, Gordon's Calvary, you'd go through the Damascus Gate. But then it used to be called the Genneth Gate or Garden Gate. Um, and w- where gates were, there were always a lot of people, particularly because, you know, to get into the city, you had to go through a gate. That was the only way. You, you know, you didn't climb over the walls. You went through the gates. So when they went out the gate, that was, it was very public. There were a lot of people passing by. And actually, there was a highway right, that went right by there, too. So a, pe- a lot of people passing by, such as Simon. But gates were very public, crowded places. And particularly would it have been a crowded place on this day because this was the Passover and people were in the city. They say there were probably two million people in the city on this particular Passover. And they were busy going into the city to um, purchase their lambs, to have their lambs slain that day. Also to purchase supplies because the next two days in a row were Sabbaths. The next day would be Friday, because we're going with a Thursday crucifixion. We give you reasons for that if you want to get our material on that. But we're going with a Thursday crucifixion so that he was literally buried in the ground three days and three nights, and that's the only way you can do it, and rose on Sunday. But Friday would have been the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a special holy Sabbath, according to Leviticus 23. And then the next day, Saturday, was a weekly Sabbath, So for the next two days, people wouldn't be able to go into the city and out of the city. The next two days were Sabbaths; They basically had to sit still and rest. They couldn't purchase things. So this was a very, very busy day. So I don't think they took him all over the city. I think enough people would have seen him if they just had paraded him that one quarter of a mile from Gabbatha over to Golgotha. Now remember the crucifixion procession would have uh, begun with a herald. He would be in the front, and he would announce the crimes of those who were to be crucified. And behind him was the, who? The centurion. And then behind the centurion would be each of the criminals to be crucified, and on either side of each of them were two Roman soldiers, so that was a total of 12 soldiers. And we added it up and said there would be 17 people in that procession. And they picked one up along the way. Just as they went through the Ganeth gate, they, it said they went out. Who did they get? Simon. Because the Lord was just not quite physically able to carry that heavy crossbeam on his back. And that's what the Romans did. They would make the crucifixion victims wear the crossbeam. Now, not the whole cross. I know you've seen pictures, many pictures in storybooks and wherever, of Jesus carrying a whole cross, haven't you? You know, carrying it like this, the whole thing. But they didn't normally do that because no man, after being scourged, and especially as the Lord was scourged so that he was beyond human recognition, but they would make the victims carry the cross beam, which was heavy enough. It would weigh about 80 pounds. Now, the the vertical part of the cross was about eight feet tall. So figure two feet taller than a six foot man. About eight feet tall and it was a six by six piece of rough, rugged wood. That's just the vertical cross piece of the cross. And then the cross beam would be about five feet across so that they could stretch a man's arms out on it. Five or maybe five and a half feet across. It also was a six by six piece of rough wood wood, and um, <clears throat> together the cross would weigh about two hundred pounds. That would just be too much. But even even the patibulum, even just the cross beam, was about eighty pounds, eighty or ninety pounds. And you imagine putting that on a man's shoulders that were bloody. And the, maybe the bones even exposed after being scourged. We don't know. We talked about the possibility that the Lord might have even be, been scourged twice. And just the rough treatment. And to put that on his shoulders and then with chains, just horrible. Just absolutely horrible. But but he only was to carry that, the cross beam, not the whole. So erase the whole picture of the cross from your minds. But even the cross beam would be would be terrible and we know that it was too much because the Lord even though he's God and he could have instantly healed himself couldn't he and walked right out of the midst of them those chains would have dropped right off the the patibulum would have dropped off he could have stood up and been whole and just walked out from the midst of them or he could have called down 12 legions of angels but that wasn't the plan from the beginning of time that was not the plan so he was going to go through the whole thing but as not, you know, he was God, so he could have done that. But as man, he had a human body, and a human body has its limitations. And he stumbled, he staggered through what was probably the longest walk of his life. Think about how, how many miles the Lord walked in his 33 years. I wonder if anybody's tried to calculate that. You know, if they've gone through his life chronologically, and I guess you could never really come up with it, but at hundreds of thousands of miles, I'm sure. He walked a lot. He walked everywhere. You know, he didn't have a car, didn't have a vehicle, didn't have a, even a bike. <laughs> hmm? They didn't need gyms. They didn't need workout. They didn't need curves. They, you know, they just were all in shape. <laughs> right. He but he didn't go two, more than 200 miles, but he walked all over the place. yeah. yeah. Yeah, he did a lot of walking, but I'm sure this was the, this one quarter of a mile was probably the longest walk of his entire life. It's called the Via Dolorosa, the Way of Sorrow, because for him it was a very sorrowful walk. Now, as we learned last week, he was an unable to complete that walk, and um, therefore the Romans compelled a random man to to uh, carry the crossbeam for Jesus. Of course, from the divine perspective, it was not just a random man, was it? From the divine perspective, God chose Simon the Cyrene. And think about it without that brief little experience of his life, no one would ever have heard of Simon the Cyrene, would they? Would we, some 2,000 years later, be talking about this man? No, we would never ever have heard of him. But now this once obscure man from northern Africa, from Libya, we've been hearing a lot about Libya lately, haven't we? That's where he was from, was Libya. Um, Is forever immortalized in the eternal pages of the scripture as the man who was compelled to help Jesus bear the weight of the beam. However, no one could ever help Jesus bear the weight of the cross, could they? That he had to bear alone, and he did. The cross, in fact, had been the whole purpose of the Lord's earthly visitation. It was his obsession, you could say. As anguishing as he knew it would be in every single realm, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually, every realm, yet the work of the cross is what consumed the Lord's mind his entire life as every day drew him nearer and nearer to the fulfillment of that all-important mission. That was why he came to earth, was to die for man's sins. He was not a helpless victim of fate, as you'll read in the liberal theology books, that Jesus, you know, had devised a plan that somehow went awry. It failed, and when the tables got turned around, he ended up on a Roman cross. That's not how it was supposed to go. You know, he, he made a boo-boo, and he wound up being killed. That's not true at all. Um, and they will say that, however, fortunately, because of his faithful followers, they said he rose from the dead, um, and they formed a new religion based on him. I remember that apostate pastor whose article in the paper we read last year? Men like that will say that his faithful followers put creative speeches into the mouth of Jesus. You know, all these creative speeches and they actually made him predict his crucifixion and his re- it's just so much blarney. It's it's just all lies. That's not at all what happened. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ was a necessary part. In fact, it was at the very core of God's predetermined redemptive plan for mankind. We went through that last week when we started all the way with Genesis 3.15 when God first predicted that this is how man would be saved. He would send the promise to the woman, the Savior, and he would be the one who would crush the head of the serpent and die for our sins. It was all predetermined by God. So if you get a book like that, throw it in the trash and burn, or burn it. Now, in our continuing look at the Lord's way of the cross, we uh, will complete his journey to Calvary this morning. That path was not a pleasant path, but it was a real path. And although we don't know for sure the exact exact route that he took, we do know of two recorded events that took place just in that one quarter mile walk. The first one we've already looked at, it involved a man, a man who was given a great privilege, a man from Cyrene. The second event in that short one-quarter mile walk, the Via Della Rosa, involved women, some women from Jerusalem, and the Lord's prediction of sorrow to them. So let's look, if you would open up to Luke 23, let's look at the Lord's prediction of sorrow. This is the second and last recorded event on the way to the cross. Luke 23, starting at verse 27. Luke 23, 27. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Luke here immediately tells us what we already could have guessed. He tells us that the procession of Jesus and the two thieves through the streets of Jerusalem to a place just outside of the city um, where they were to be crucified, that, that procession drew a great company of people. And that's exactly what we would expect, especially on this very busy Passover day. The city was packed with people. And as I mentioned earlier, public executions always drew large crowds of people, but add to the fact, add to that fact, the fact that Jesus was also a very popular figure, you know, everybody by this time had basically heard of Jesus, and with word, now it's close to nine o'clock in the morning, and everybody's up, and so word is passing through the whole city like wildfire, that Jesus is about to be crucified, So people are coming from everywhere, and there's a huge crowd. And so we know the crowd swelled quickly with all kinds of people. Who would be there? Well, there would be beggars, of course, especially at a city gate. There would be idlers. There would be those who were his fierce enemies, and we know they were there. There would be some of his own followers, perhaps trying to stay at a safe distance. There were some like Simon who were just passing by, just going on their, you know, doing their duties that day, and they kind of got caught up in the in the in the whole procession. Some were just curious onlookers, like when there's an accident out on U.S. One. Don't you get people that just pull off the side of the road? Some pull off to help, but others just want to slow down and take a good look, don't they? There was a lot of curious onlookers. Some joined the procession just for the fun of scorning the victims, mocking and scorning them. And there were a few that were there, and they were sympathetic to, to the prisoners, and they wept for them. Now, the size of this great crowd was not without divine purpose. As with events in the Lord's life, such as his powerful Sermon on the Mount and his miraculous feeding of both the 5,000 and the 4,000, his healing of the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda, and his raising of Lazarus from the dead, important events in the Lord's life. The, The Lord God always provided a large crowd to serve as witnesses and as testimony to the fact of these events. And he certainly did that with Calvary because he knew that down through the ages, people would pop up and say, well, you know, Jesus never did die. He was never crucified. Do they like to rewrite history nowadays? Yeah, watch out about the history books your, students are, your children are studying in the school system because they're, they're loving to rewrite history and making a lot of the good guys into bad guys and vice versa, the bad guys into good guys. And so God knew that this is what they would do. They would say that the whole thing didn't even happen. He never was crucified. But no one could say that about the cross because there were just too many witnesses to it. So God provided this great crowd of of uh, this great company, as Luke says. Now, Luke, who is known as the gospel of womanhood, do you know why Luke is called that by many? Because more than any of the other three gospel writers, he tells us more accounts of women because he was a doctor and he could sympathize with women and what they go through in birth and all that, and bleeding for 12 years and all all the, you know, he's the one that always seems to mention women. So he's called the gospel of womanhood. But here he is the only one who tells us that among this great company of those who joined the Calvary Cavalcade were women who, seeing Jesus in his pathetic condition on his way to such a pitiful end, did what for him? they bewailed him and they lamented him now these were not women such as those who are mentioned in Matthew 27:55 women who accompanied the lord and his disciples as he traveled around and ministered to him those were galilean women such as his mother mary and such as mary of of mary magdalene mary of magdala They called her Mary Magdalene because she was of Magdala. Um, These weren't women like Joanna or Susanna or Mary, the wife of Cleopas, or Salome, Mary's sister. All those women were Galilean women who loved and worshipped Jesus. These are called the daughters of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Therefore, they're not from the northern province of Galilee. They're from the southern province of Judea. These are Judean women. Now, their crying was very pronounced. I don't know if you've ever seen, um, Middle East women cry, but they put on quite a show. They, the, the, the uh, bewailing actually speaks of their action of beating their breasts. They would beat their breasts and then they wail. Have you ever heard women that wail? When my dad died, Frank said, I did that. He said, I started wailing. Well, I've never wailed before, so it must be in my blood. (laughs) But they have this terrible, you don't want to hear it because it's really sad, but they wail and they beat their breasts, and that's what they were doing here. This was no small demonstration of emotion, but the reason for their display of this emotion was not because they believed the truth of Christ's claim. It's not because they believed he really was their Messiah and look at this terrible tragedy, we're going to kill our own Messiah. That's not why they were crying. Now, that's why they should have been crying, but they weren't crying for that reason. Do you know why these women were crying? Because they were women. That's the whole reason. They were crying because they were women and their emotion, you know, we have sympathy for people more than men, don't we? We see somebody really hurting, and they probably looked at Jesus and hardly could recognize that he was a man, and they saw that he stumbled and fell, and somebody else had to pick up his cross beam, and yet he had such a tender look of love, and they knew they had heard about him, and he was a good man, you know? And how can this be happening to this good man? And so they're crying. Just It's pure female sympathy here is what it is. You know, these were wives. They were mothers. They were grandmothers, they were aunts, and they just saw these cruel marks of brutality that had been laid upon this, this man, and and they just broke out in sympathetic crying. Now, this is very interesting. Did you, you realize that there is never mentioned in any of the four gospel accounts in, of Christ's life, there is never mentioned a single woman who Jesus encountered who was his enemy. He never encountered a single woman who was his enemy. Now, there was a nasty woman called Herodias who made her own daughter do a dance, but Jesus never encountered her, okay? John the Baptist, unfortunately, encountered her, but Jesus never did. He had many male enemies who confronted him at almost every turn. You know, every time he turned around, he had male enemies. But the women with whom he came into direct contact in the gospel record were only those who came to him for help for themselves, in many cases help for someone else, like a daughter or a son or a loved one. They were women who came to worship him or women who came to minister to him Or women such as these women on the Via Dolorosa who wept for him. And do you know we never find Jesus saying anything harmful or anything derogatory to women? Isn't that refreshing? We as Christians have so much to be thankful for the fact of Jesus Christ. He elevated women. Before Jesus, women were treated like dogs in most cultures. As they are today in many other religions. You know, if you look at many other religions, they are man-centered. Aren't they? The Muslim, you know, the Muslim young men are taught that if they will blow themselves up in jihad and give their lives for Allah, what are they immediately promised? It's a lie. Immediately promised paradise where they will have, I don't know how many have lost track of how many virgins they get to enjoy for all of eternity. Is that man-centered? What about those poor virgins? Do you think that's the way they want to spend eternity? Or well, the Mormons believe The Mormons believe that if you're really good Mormon, you will one day be able to be like Adam, a god of your own planet, and populate that planet. You'll be able to have many wives who will be perpetually pregnant populating your planet. Oh, wow, that's a lot to look forward to as a female, to be perpetually pregnant? No, thank you. So, you know, Jesus, Jesus. even though it was through men that God gave the world the written word of God, you know it was through a woman that he gave the world the living word of God. I always say he's an equal opportunity employer. He used both men and women. And you know, Jesus when he went to the cross and died, he died equally for the souls of men and the souls of women. Did he not? And if you look through his earthly life as we have been doing, we find over and over again that he was always repeatedly showing love and concern for women and commending women for their faith and their insight. Women like that Syrophoenician woman who he said had great faith he never said that of anyone else except one Gentile man. And he commended the widow who gave her two mites, didn't he? And the woman with the 12-year issue of blood. And of course, we know Mary of Bethany, how special she was, and Martha. But Mary of Bethany, I think, understood the Lord better than any man prior to his resurrection. In fact, the Lord's very last personal concern was, before he died, was for a woman, and that was for his mother. Also, it was to women that the good news of his resurrection was first announced. And it was to a woman that he first appeared in his glorified body, to Mary Magdalene. And now we also find that his, la- his only recorded words, spoken to people, Between the time of his sentencing and the time he hung on the cross were words spoken to these women, these daughters of Jerusalem, upon whom he took great pity. What did he say to them? Can you imagine? He's on his way, suffering. Well, I guess the beam is now on the back of Simon, but he's still suffering, struggling along, and he stops to speak to these women, and he says to them, Weep not for me, but weep for yourselves. And for your children. And then he says, for behold, this is a warning. This is a prophetic warning. He says, for behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. They shall then begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? You know, if you stop to think about it, if Jesus had just been a mere man, as even those weeping for him thought he was, he would have been so consumed with his own suffering and his own pain and all that lay ahead of him, you know, just in the next minutes when he knew that they would stretch forth his hands and and, and nail them with those big spikes. I'll show you how big the spikes were. He knew that was coming in the next minute. That If he had been a normal man, would he have taken the time Would he even, number one, have noticed some women wailing along the way? Probably wouldn't even have noticed them, much less have stopped to speak to them. But as always, the Lord's compassion was not spent on himself. It was for others that he was concerned. It's just the kind of God we have. He's always thinking of others, even minutes before he's nailed to a cross. He knew with the eternal vision of God himself what loomed ahead for Jerusalem and for her citizens, for Israel, and for the Jewish people because of their rejection of him. He could see down the corridors of time and history, and he knew what lay ahead for them. Remember what he had revealed? We had been talking about Palm Sunday a little bit earlier. Remember what he revealed? He was coming from Bethany, where he had spent the night with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and it was just two miles away. And when he had crested the Mount of Olives, he got suddenly a panoramic view of Jerusalem, And he broke out weeping, and what did he say? He said, if thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. If you guys had known this special day, how could they have known that very special day, Palm Sunday? Because it had been predicted in Daniel, right down to the very day. If they had listened to Daniel 9's prophecy, they could have calculated He had said their Messiah would come on a certain day, count forward from such and such. I'm not going to get into it, but they could have known that that was the day their Messiah would officially present himself as Messiah and King. And that was the very day he rode in on that little donkey. But they missed it. He said, you could have had peace, but you willfully missed it. And now these things are hid from from your eyes. Have you ever wondered why Israel is so blind to the truth of her own Messiah? Because their eyes are blind. They have been, you know, divinely blinded as a nation. He said, for the days come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee. And this is exactly what the Romans did when they came in 70 AD. They they built a trench around the city. And they compassed them round about. And they kept them on every side. You know, they wouldn't let them... Out of the city. And remember we talked about this last week. Those who tried to escape were crucified. So many were crucified. They didn't even have any more room for crosses around the whole city of Jerusalem. They laid bare all the trees because they used them for crosses. And the people were starving and dying inside of the city and they were throwing the bodies out, women and children. It was horrible. He says, they shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children with thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. That's what he said to Israel on Palm Sunday. Then two days later, Tuesday of the Passion Week, his men heard him cry out in despair over the utter desolation and destruction that he knew was coming upon the temple and consequently also upon the nation. He said these words, and you could hear the despair and tears in his voice when he said, "O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophet and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thee,
1: uh,
0: uh, my children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. And then what did he say? But ye would not you would not come to me and have the peace and salvation that I offer. Not that you couldn't. He said, ye would not. It was willful disobedience. They you know that their leaders were willful. And as go the leaders, thus goes the nation. They followed their leaders. And so he said, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. That was Tuesday. And now it's two days later. First of all, Palm Sunday, then Tuesday, now here it is Thursday, another two days later. And he's on his way to his death. And he stops to warn some wailing women, daughters of Jerusalem, of the divine judgment looming ahead for them and for their children. Now I want to stop and ask you a question. Who is in control here? Jesus is on the way to his own death. He can barely walk. He probably has to almost be dragged. I don't know, maybe some of the Roman soldiers on either side of him are helping him, getting him there. But he is still the one in control. Doesn't he look like he should be the one who is to be pitied? Doesn't it look like he should be the one who is being commanded by the Romans? Don't you, you know, if he stops, They're trying to get there in a hurry because they don't want a a scene, you know, a mob, a revolt. And so if he stops to talk to these women, don't you think the Roman soldiers would get their whips and say, Come on, get going. Stop that. Stop talking. Get going. Doesn't it look like he should be the one to be pitied and he should be the one who's being commanded? But is that what's going on here? Not at all. He is the one who, of his own initiative, stops along the way to do what? To show compassion, number one. Number two, to utter a prophetic warning of coming judgment. And number three, to actually be the one to give a command. You know, what he said to those women was a literal command. He said to them, weep not. That's a command. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and weep for your children. So again, I want to point out all along the way, he is the king in control. He's the one calling the shots. Now, to command bystanders, not to weep for him, but to weep for themselves, that was most unexpected. You would never see that in a crucifixion procession with anyone else. And we don't know who all heard his words to these weeping women, but we do know this. The weeping women heard his words. We know that the Roman centurion would have heard his words. We know that the Roman soldiers on either side of him would have heard his words. We know that the thieves behind him would have heard his words. And we know that Simon the Cyrenian would have heard his words, right? Think about how many people in that procession that heard and watched Jesus through the whole thing had their hearts touched. Some of them saved. Some of them came to salvation. We know one of the thieves. We know Simon. We know um, that the Roman centurion and the Roman, some of the Roman soldiers said, truly, this was the Son of God. And we don't know who all else. But this was, again, divine providence at work. <clears throat> he was telling these women that there was more reason for them to weep for themselves um, than for him. He actually told them there was a time coming when there would be a new beatitude. You know, we discussed the beatitudes in Matthew 5. Here's a new beatitude for you Blessed are the barren. Blessed are the barren. Now, that right there just underscores the greatness of the judgment that he was predicting because barrenness was considered a curse for a Jewish woman. It was considered a terrible disgrace for her if she could not bear children. It was even grounds, the men said, for divorce. I guess it never dawned on them it could have been their fault, you know. <laughs> but Jesus knew. He knew of the horrible destruction that was to come upon the Jews within Just one generation. He knew that more than a million of them would perish in just a few, in just a short period of time. Many of them sadly being women and children. He saw the downfall of a people that he had tried so hard to bring to himself and to protect, you know, under his eternal care as a mother hen does protect her little biddies under her wings. And he sorrowed at her unwillingness to allow him to save her as a nation. But that didn't mean he couldn't warn individuals. You know, it was too late for the nation, but he warned individuals, it's not too late for you, just as today. You know, Israel is still suffering under divine blindness, but we know many Jews are coming to the Lord individually. He could also see with his divine vision the Jewish mothers who would wish that their children had never been born. You know, to watch your child starve to death, You'd wish that the child had never been born. He could hear with his divine ears the people cry out for mercy, for the mountains and hills to literally crush them, to fall on them and crush them. I mean, those are the words of terror. That's the language of terror, that they would be rather be crushed to death by the mountains around them than to have the Romans come and get them and crucify them or, you know, do whatever they would to them. Uh, and these words actually remind us of what is to come yet future from where we are today in history. You know, he spoke very similar words in the Olivet Discourse, the greatest prophetic sermon ever uttered by the greatest prophet who ever lived. That was on Tuesday also of the same week. Remember when he said, and this is speaking about the time of the Great Tribulation, and again he's speaking to those who are living in Jerusalem. You know, they're going to sign a peace covenant, with a false messiah and uh... for three and a half years things will go pretty good but he's going to break that covenant in the middle and jesus warns he says when that happens woe unto them that are with child right because that's going to hinder you from escaping and he said this, or he didn't, but John did in Revelation 6. He said uh, that the people of the earth at that time will hide themselves in the dens and the rocks and the mountains and cry out to them, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. It's, it just always is amazing to me. That even in the great tribulation, with all the things that they're going to see, just like the judgments that Moses did on Egypt, except the judgments will be worldwide, and here the people know where those judgments are coming from, the throne of God and the wrath of the Lamb, and yet instead of going out there and repenting, what do they do? They hide and they shake their fist. And they're trying to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. They still won't repent. And they say, for the great day of his, his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? You know, it's always a wise thing to listen to the words of Jesus. There were those people who listened to his warnings back in 70 AD. He warned them that they were going to suffer judgment. He warned these women, didn't he? And there were Jewish people who took his word seriously and fled Jerusalem and were saved from that 70 AD destruction. Same thing is true today. He's warned us about the coming tribulation and all the horror of it. So people need to be saved. They need to take his word seriously. What he has prophesied is going to come to pass. We need to be saved today while it's still the day of grace. And we'll be out of here. We won't have to go through all of that horror on earth. Well, back to Luke. Luke 23, 31. I'm going to skip over this for time. But he spoke a parable. And it's about a living tree. uh, Compares a living tree to a dry, dead tree. But I'm going to let you read that in the books, okay? Because of time, let's move on to the prisoners with the Savior. And this we find in Luke 23:32. Um so let's look at that verse. It says, and there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. Now over in Matthew and Mark, he also they also talk about these two other men who were crucified with Jesus. If you put the three gosp- four gospels together, we find out there are three different words used for these thieves or these malefactors. One is what Luke just said here, malefactors. That's a reference to someone who continually does evil all the time, and continually does evil, malefactor. And remember, this is what the Jews originally accused Jesus of. When they took him to Pontius Pilate, Pilate said, what's the accusation against him? And what did they respond? They said, well, they didn't have an accusation that they knew would work with Pilate. So they sarcastically said, if he were not a malefactor, would we have delivered him up unto thee? That was their answer. And, of course, Pilate examined him and found out he wasn't a malefactor at all. In fact, Pilate said six times, I find nothing amiss with this guy. I find no fault in him whatsoever. But there's also another word that is used by Matthew and Mark for these two malefactors, and then that is the word thieves. It's not your usual Greek word, however, for thieves, like a petty thief or a common thief, someone who might um, steal your purse in a mall and run away. The Greek word that is used for these two guys that were crucified with Jesus is the word lestes, and it speaks of a cruel bandit kind of a thief. Remember that man who was robbed on the road to Jericho in the parable of the Good Samaritan? He was robbed and beaten and left for dead. The guy didn't just rob him, did he? That's the kind of thief that this is talking about with these two thieves. Now, it is speculated that they were also insurrectionists along with Barabbas. They probably knew Barabbas and were probably part of his little bandit group. And they say that Barabbas probably would have been on that middle cross where Jesus instead of Barabbas. The third word used in the scripture to describe these two men is the word transgressors. And Mark is the only one who uses this word and the reason he uses it is to point out the fact that it was a fulfillment of prophecy because Isaiah 53:12 said that the Messiah would be numbered with transgressors. And was he? Yes. Yes, at the judgment bar of man the righteous one was numbered with the wicked. However, at the final judgment bar of God, he will will make sure that none of those who are covered with his righteousness will be numbered with the wicked and he will be the judge of the wicked. All right, place of the skull. Now, I'm I'm almost out of time, so let me just tell you really quickly, there's two names in scripture that are given to us for the place where Jesus was crucified. One is Golgotha, and it means... The place of a skull in Hebrew and in Aramaic the other word which amazingly is only found once is the word Calvary once in all the Bible even though we sing more of Calvary than we do of Golgotha it's the same place but Calvary is only mentioned in Luke twenty-three thirty-three, and it comes from the Greek word cranium cranium is where we get our English word for cranium skull it means skull they later transfer, translated that Greek word into Latin, and the Latin word for skull is calvaria. So you see where calvary came from. But whether you use the Aramaic, the Hebrew, the Greek, or the Latin word, they all mean the same thing. The place where Jesus Christ was crucified is called the place of a skull, singular Skull. It couldn't have been given that name because it was a burial ground and there were skulls laying around because the Jews, it was absolutely taboo to have any part of a dead body, a skeleton, above ground. So that is not how it's got its name. Now, there are many speculations about how it got its name, skull, place of a skull. Some say there must have been some... Uh, some horrible deed that took place there. Others say it's you know due to some ancient legend. Others say that it's due to the topography of the uh, the hill that's sort of there. And if you go to Gordon's Calvary, this, there is a hill that does look like a skull. You can see um, you can see the eye sockets and you can kind of see a gaping place for the for the mouth. And it does when you look. I've been there. I've seen it. It does look like a skull, doesn't it? So it could be that uh, they don't know for sure. It's interesting. I was thinking about all the songs that we sing, like at Calvary. You know, doesn't it? If you really think about what the word means, we sing the song, Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. Where? At the place of a skull. That's really, I mean, that's cold water in your face, isn't it? (laughs) But that's what it is. Um, (laughs) one very interesting thing I read is that legend has it, tradition has it now this is really fascinating and there's no way we can be dogmatic about it but it is said that this is where the head of Goliath was buried Hmm, and that is really interesting when you think about Genesis 3.15 you know how the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent has there ever been a nine-foot man who so epitomized Satan as Goliath? And remember David, with his smooth stone and his slingshot, killed him, and then what did he do with Goliath? He beheaded him, and they say that they took he took his head and, and buried it right outside of the city of Jerusalem, and that it is there that Jesus was crucified on the head of Goliath. I don't know, but it sure makes you—it gave me goosebumps— <laughs> It's a nice thing to think about, I don't know. But where, forever, whatever the reason for the name, for the Lord Jesus, it was that day the place of a skull. Because a skull speaks of what? Death. And this is where he would lay down his life and die. Um, now there are two places, if you go to Jerusalem, two places where they will show you that uh, could have been Calvary. One is called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, the other is called Gordon's Calvary. Um, I'm not going to get into all that because it's in the notes. You can decide for yourself if either one is the place. We don't know. I tend to go more with Gordon's Calvary because it does say that he suffered outside of the gate, outside of the wall, and the churches of the Holy Sepulchre is inside the wall. However, there are those who argue that the walls have been moved, so I don't know. I'll let you mess with all that. There is then the passing of the sedative. I want to give time to Kristen, so I'm not going to go over that, but make sure you read your notes about how they offered him uh, wine vinegar mixed with myrrh that was like a sedative. He refused it because he wanted to have his full faculties to, to go through all the suffering to make sure he covered every prophecy that needed to be fulfilled and said every saying he needed to say he wanted his full mind so he refused that sedative now Kristen if you will come up here this is Kristen Hernandez she is part of our Bible study and um, if she was going to hang around I would eventually make her a leader because she is a godly young lady she has two children if you want to turn around and look at little Elliot and Sophia we we laugh because my I have a granddaughter named Sophia and so does she. It's Sophia and Elliot and they are getting ready to go on the mission field to Monterey, Mexico, and all those drug cartels and just pray for these little precious children. All right, I'm going to turn it over to Kristen.
1: And I'm going to sing now. Catherine asked me to sing the Via Dolorosa because. Down the Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem that day The soldiers tried to clear the narrow streets But the crowd pressed in to see The man condemned to die on Calvary He was bleeding from a beating There were stripes upon his back And he wore a crown of thorns upon his head And he bore with every step The scorn of those who cried out for his death Down the via, the La Rosa Called the way of suffering Like a lamb came the Messiah Christ the King But he chose to walk that road Out of his love For you and me Down the Via Dolorosa All the way To Calvary. Por la vía dolorosa, triste día en Jerusalén, los soldados le abrían paso a Jesús, mas la gente se acercaba. Para ver al que llevaba aquella cruz. Por la vía dolorosa que es la vía del dolor. Como oveja vino Cristo Rey y Señor. Y fue Él quien quiso ir por su amor por ti. Dolorosa al Calvario Amor. The blood that was shed for the souls of all men made its way to the heart of Jerusalem. way of suffering like a lamb came the Messiah Christ the King but he chose to walk that road out of his love for you and me down the via Dolorosa all the way Calvary